Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Every good love story has some common ingredients in it. Uh, a lot of screenwriters and, and script writers and directors in film, they follow just kind of like this arc and this path uh, for creating a love story. And there's just these ingredients that you put in. You may change up some of the details, but the ingredients are all the same. Last week, Ruth One gave us what they call the dramatic opening conflict, where you're introduced to the problems and the, uh, the problems that are in the characters' lives that give them this sense of not having fulfillment and this sense of I'm alone or something is just not right with my life and I'm in desperate need of a solution, which happens to be a love connection. You find that that becomes the solution to their problems. Another ingredient to a good love story is what screenwriters call the meet-cute moment. All right, Roger Ebert, who is the, uh, the film critic uh, of, of legendary status, uh, he described the meet-cute quite simply as love interests meet each other in a cute way. Well, he's no Daniel Webster or anything like that, but that's how he describes a meet-cute moment. But a meet-cute is basically a convention mostly used in movies that sets up a situation where two potential love interests have this memorable first meeting with one another. The situation is usually awkward. Maybe sometimes it's funny or ironic. Uh, it might even be embarrassing, but they are often the most romantic moments in the movies. It's the time that you go back to in the movie to say, this is where the love story really took off. It's that first scene in which the couple meets uh, and always puts the romance into the motion. It's where you realize, okay, these are the two main characters, and at the end of the, and at the, end of the story, this is the, these are the people that I'm going to have my box of tissues out and crying because I'm so happy that they finally got together. That's the meet-cute moment. As we move into chapter 2 of Ruth today, we are given that meet-cute. This is where we're going to see the two, uh, the two lovers of the story finally come to meet one another. And it may not seem like that cute of a moment, but this meet cute moment is more than, just, uh, more than just something that we look back on in this story and say, wow, that was really nice. This meet cute moment had the capacity to change the world. Matter of fact, this meet cute moment is different than the ones in the movies. You may, watch a, you may watch a movie and that meet cute that takes place, it may affect you for a couple of hours during the movie. It may even affect you for maybe a couple of days after you watch a really good movie. But this meet cute moment that took place, this real one that took place between Ruth and Boaz, actually had the capacity to affect each and every one of us sitting here today. This one is, and this is the, the title of the sermon this morning, this meet cute that takes place in chapter two of the book of Ruth is a meet cute for the ages. Because what took place in this field in chapter two affects us sitting here today in the state of Kentucky, in the city of Lexington, in the year 2020. Because this meet cute had eternal ramifications to it. We're going to see that as the story develops over the, over the course of the month. But trust me on this, these two meeting one another changed the course of the entire world. So before we get into that, let's review how the stage was set in chapter 1, which really doesn't read like a romance novel. It reads more like a Shakespearean tragedy when it starts up. If you were here last week, this is kind of a review for you. But in chapter 1, we open up and we find out that this takes place during the time of the judges uh, in Israel, which was a bloody, chaotic time that was marked by this phrase, according to God. It was a time when God's people did what was right in their own eyes. And that means that they had turned their back on God. They had taken God's law and said, yeah, I'm just going to do my own thing. 
And so that led to a lot of problems. Anytime we turn our back on God and say, I'm going to go against what you say, and I'm going to try it my own way, it always leads to problems. And so a big problem that had developed in the land of Israel, specifically in the town of Bethlehem, was that there was a famine that had taken place. And so Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife, and their two kids, Malon and Chilion, end up leaving Bethlehem, end up leaving God's provided land for them, and they go and live in a foreign country called Moab. Moab was a place that had constantly been at Israel's throat. They had constantly been going against them. They were a pagan land. Everything that took place in Moab was everything that God said should not take place in Israel. And so they end up to go and they stay for a little while to ride out the famine over in Moab. While they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left widowed with her two boys. And the only option for them to survive is, is uh, Malon and Chilion, hoping to have children, end up taking two Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And while they're there, 10 years pass by, Orpah and Ruth still don't have kids. And then Malon and Chilion, their husbands, they die too. So now we have three widows with no children, with no hope. They're destitute. They're on their own. And that's kind of where we're set. About the middle part of the chapter, Naomi hears that back home in Bethlehem, God has lifted the famine and, and is beginning to give bread back to the people there in, uh, at home. And so Naomi realizes that after over 10 years, it's time to finally go home, if for nothing else, than to just die among her people. But she says, at least there's bread. Maybe I'll have a chance to survive. And so she tells her two Moabite daughters-in-law and says, look, we've got to part ways. Ruth says, I am not leaving you. I am staying with you. Your people are my people. Your God will be my God. I will not leave you. And so Ruth and Naomi end up coming back into Israel. And Naomi is so hurt and she's so broken by all the loss in her life, realizing that them stepping away from God had brought this much in her life. She says, I don't want to be called Naomi anymore. I'm not pleasant and sweet like my name means. She says, now you should call me Mara, which means bitterness and hopelessness. And the people of Israel welcome her back. But Ruth has another problem on her, on her side. Is she's not one of them. She's a Moabite. And God had said, and the people had become very, uh, very distinctly set against the Moabites because of all the problems and all of the nationalistic problems that were taking place. And so Ruth is set up against a whole other set of problems than Naomi is. But as we ended the chapter last week, that's where we are. They've come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest season. And so here's where we pick up our text this morning. Two widows in Bethlehem all alone. They got no food. They got no jobs. How are they going to survive? And in verse number one, here's where it goes. And Naomi had a kinsman or a relative of her husband's. He's a mighty man of wealth, which means that he was prominent in Bethlehem. The word implies valiant, brave, noble, high integrity. He was a soldier. He was one that, uh, that was just well-respected. It has a deeper meaning than just being rich. Because how many of you know you can be rich without being respectable? right? Not only was this man a man of great wealth, but he used his wealth for the right reasons and people respected him. Not only was he wealthy, but he was of the family of Elimelech and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, let me go now to the field and glean ears of corn or fallen grain after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Now understand how much of a problem this was going to be. Ruth, this Moabite woman is going to go and try to find somebody that's going to show mercy on her and show compassion on her in the nation of Israel. This is going to be tough. And she says, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to find somebody who's just going to even let me into the field. And she says, let me go now into the field and glean, course, uh, glean this from someone I find grace. And Naomi said unto her, go, my daughter. So Ruth goes out to do what poor people did in those days. 
She goes and she went and she came and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, to understand a little bit of the context at this point, Leviticus chapter 3, the Old Testament law in Israel, said that uh, it had laws for the harvest. It said that when you go out to harvest, the harvesters and the field owners could do one pass through each field. And they could only collect what they could collect in that one pass. If things fell out of the, of the wagon or something like that, they were to leave that specifically for those who were poor, for those who were needy. And the process was called gleaning. They were actually not even supposed to harvest in the four corners of their field so that the poor people could go and do it. It's kind of like an Old Testament welfare system, looking out for those that were the least among them. And so obeying the law, that's what they did. And so, and so Ruth basically says, is, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take part of this welfare program and I'm going to go and I'm going to glean what has been left over. I'm going to take the scraps. And it says, as she comes into this field, and this teaches us something as well, that we have to get as the church is that God always has a plan to care for the poor. And God always uses God's people to care for the poor as well. As churches, as Christians, we need to be benevolent and we need to be philanthropic and we need to be giving of ourselves for those who do not have what we have. That plan was the generosity of his people. It says this, it says, and her hap, well, that's a real nice and high and lofty way of saying it just so happened that she came to a field that belonged to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Now, it just so happened that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, who just so happens to be Naomi's deceased husband. So he's a relative of Naomi. So let's point out a couple of things here. Saying that Boaz is a relative or a kinsman is a really good thing for Ruth and Naomi because it means that there may be someone around that's going to help them. Also, if you're a Jewish reader at this time, it's also a point or to tell to you that there's a romance afoot. Now, even though we live in Kentucky, when you say so-and-so were cousins, it usually doesn't get you thinking love story right away. Right? But we are in Kentucky, I get that, but usually it doesn't get you thinking. But back then, in those days, it meant that there was a romance that was coming, coming in. At this point, you might want to cue the romantic sweeping music to drive home the fact that there's a cousin love about to take place. The other thing to point out in this phrase is that it just so happened, or her hap was. This is going to be repeated a couple of times in the book, and it is intended for, for on purpose because she just so happens to stumble into this particular field. Of all the fields in all the world, you mosey into Boaz's field. And it just so happens that Boaz happens to be the kindred of Naomi, the one who is destitute and without hope. It's just like the meet-cutes in the movies. You know, the first encounter of the characters, it takes place in such an unbelievable way that you have to just give in to the notion of the story that there is some force at work that is greater than them that is bringing them together, like the universe just wants them together. That's kind of what's taking place here in this passage. So let's read on in verse number four. It says, Behold, Boaz... Again, more dramatic language. It doesn't just say Boaz. It says, and behold, Boaz, right? More dramatic language. At this point, you cue more dramatic music, maybe even like, you know, the theme song from Rocky because you get this idea of the kind of guy that Boaz is. It says he came from Bethlehem. Boaz is the man, all right? His name means strong pillar. So picture Boaz here riding on his horse, his cape flapping in the wind as he throws back his hair in the wind, kind of like that, kind of like that Nicolas Cage meme from Con Air, you know, if you've, got that one, if you've got that one in your head. It says, and then it says, he comes in, he's a man's man, and he, he gets off his horse and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him and they said, no, the Lord bless you. Now, how many of you have interactions with your boss like that? You're going to go into work tomorrow 
And your boss is going to walk in and say to, every, say to everyone, the Lord be with you. And you're going to say, no, boss, the Lord be with you. That's not going to happen. The point to, this, the point to this right here and the reason that that's sitting there in the story is not just because that was just Jewish tradition. It's because it's pointing out the fact that Boaz was a man who was well-respected by his employees. That he was a man that everyone respected. He's great and everyone loves him. In verse number five, so then Boaz said to his servant who was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this or whose woman is this? Now, if you underline in your Bible, underline that question. Whose woman is this or who is this woman or whose damsel is this? Because this is the fundamental question in the entire chapter of Ruth. It's actually probably the fundamental question in the entire book. He's not just asking, hey, who is this? I've never seen her before. He's saying, who is this? Is she just simply a Moabite woman? Is she a Moabite woman to be despised? Is she uh, a stranger? Is she just damaged goods as a widow? Which is how that culture would have seen her at that time. And then in verse number six, it says, the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean after the, and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and she's continued even from the morning until now that she, other than the time that she tarried or other than when she took a break, a little bit in the house. What they're saying is, man, she's a great worker. She works harder than anybody else just about. So now the moment we've all been waiting for in verse number eight, Boaz and Ruth are going to talk to each other. Then said Boaz to Ruth, hear not thou my daughter. What he's saying is don't listen to any other offer that you may get. Go not to glean in another field. Don't go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let your eyes be on the field that they do reap in and go thou after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch you? He's like, hey guys, you see that new girl over there? Hands off. I'm serious. I own a lot of fields. They'll never find the body. Hands off. Don't touch her. It says, and then when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Now see, I realize that Old Testament times were a little different than today. But this is a terrible pickup line, isn't it? Hey, girl, I like you. You, you, just keep, you. you just keep picking up scraps from my field. And if you're thirsty, go over there by my guys and get you something out of the Gatorade tub. All right? I mean, seriously, I've heard some corny pickup lines. I grew up in church my whole life. And guys, we're, Christian guys are terrible for pickup lines. All right, some horrible ones. I've heard some terrible ones growing up in youth group and stuff like that. Something like, hey, girl. Jesus, I heard that Jesus called you when he told me, he asked me, uh, he told me he wanted me to call you too. Is that okay? That's a stupid pickup line. Don't include Jesus in that, right? Or, hey girl, I'm really concerned about you because you're breaking the Old Testament law because you are straight up working it on the Sabbath. <laughs> that never worked either, okay? Never worked. Boaz has, like this pickup line doesn't work, but here's, look at how it works. Look at this. Look at it. He goes, hey, girl, go pick up some grain over there. You're looking good with all the dirt all over your face. And everything. He goes, look, look how she responds. Then she falls on her face and bows herself to the ground. Now, ladies, if you're wanting to get a guy's attention, bow your face to the ground. No, I'm just teasing. Don't do that, all right? <laughs> Guys, maybe you might want to try it. I don't know. Try that, try that line, okay? And then it says, she says unto him, why have I found grace in your eyes? That you should take knowledge of me, seeing that I'm a stranger, I'm a foreigner, I'm a Moabite, I'm a widow, why do I mean anything to you? And Boaz answered and said to her, It's been fully shown to me all that you have done unto my, thy mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your nativity or the land of your birth and you are come to a people that you do not know heretofore. May the Lord recompense or reward your work and a full reward be given to you out of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you are come to trust. Underline that. 
Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi was bigger than that. It was to come and to trust Naomi's God. Ruth not only came to be part of Israel, she converted to worshiping the God of Israel as well. And then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and for you have uh, spoken, uh, excuse me, and for you have spoken friendly unto your handmaid, though I am not like one of your handmaidens. This is not how she expected it to go. She probably expected to be run out the minute she got there because she wasn't one of them. But instead, she's given a job. She said, don't, he says, don't go anywhere else. Stay here with me. And Boaz said unto her at mealtime, come thou hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. Kind of like the Old Testament version of going out to Cheddar's for appetizers. You know, nothing serious, just a casual, just a casual date. Just friends going out for coffee, right? It says, and, he sat beside, and she sat beside the reapers. And he reached her some parched corn or some grilled wheat, and she did eat, and she was sufficed her and was full, and she left. And she, when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not rebuke her, or do not reproach her. And let's, let also some of the handfuls of, on purpose fall for her, and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. Basically what he's saying is, throw some extra out of the stuff we've harvested, just let that fall so that she can have the good stuff. Talk about crazy, eventful first day at work in a new town, right? And in verse number 19, after her day is over with, her mother-in-law said unto her, Where did you glean today? And where wroughtest thou? Where did you work? And who let a Moabite do all of this after seeing all that she took home? And blessed be thee that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law whom she had wrought and said, and here's where we cue the dramatic romantic music again, because Ruth at this point doesn't know the connection that Boaz has with Naomi's family. But Naomi does. And she says, the man's name with whom I wrought or worked today is, wait for it, Boaz. <laughs> now get this. That's the name with whom I work today. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, blessed be the Lord who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Here's where Mara or bitterness goes from hopeless to pleasant and sweet again to be Naomi again because she sees that God has not forgotten them at all. She brought them back for this moment. And Naomi said to her, the man is near of kin to us and one of our kinsmen and Ruth the Moabites. He said also unto me, thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out in the field with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. He says, You stay into that field, and you don't go looking in any other field. This field is good enough. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest, and dwelt there with her mother-in-law. So I'm going to give you a second just to sit there for a minute. And, and is anybody else overwhelmed by just the romance of this moment? The pickup lines, the way it's meant. I mean, it's not one of those that you look at in the movies and you're like, man, this is going to be one of those memorable, meet cute moments. But this is a very important moment, and it teaches us some very important truths that we need to apply to our life today. And I want to give you some very quickly this morning that are right there on your fill-in sheet or if you're taking notes. Because in this passage, in this story, it's more than just a love story. This story is an account of how God loves his people too. You see, by now, hopefully you've understood that these characters represent more than just Ruth and Boaz and Elimelech and Naomi. They represent us. Boaz represents Jesus. Ruth represents all of us in need of help, in need of, in need of, of provision, in need of life. And some of you today might be identifying with Naomi. You've had a relationship with God, but it's kind of faltered. And you might be in a place of bitterness and hopelessness thinking, God has given up on me. But I want to show you from this passage, from this, from this scripture this morning, how this applies very closely to our lives today. 
that Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, is looking for us today. And he wants to do the same thing that Boaz did for Ruth here. So let's look at a couple of things. And I read uh, studying this week that Ruth is like a beautiful pearl in the pig pen of Judges. Because Ruth, this story sits in the narrative of the book of Judges, the book right before that. And Judges is not full of good stories. Judges is not full of happy endings. But in the middle of the book of Judges, you have this beautiful story with a happy ending. And not only is it just something that gives people a break from the chaos of the book of Judges, it's something that gives hope to all of us today. It doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel. It doesn't just apply to those people back then. It doesn't just apply to people who like ancient literature. This story applies to us today as the church because it shows us something even deeper. And the first thing that we see here is, is, is this, is that God wants us all to come to Jesus. Well, one of the underlying messages that we find in this passage is that God wants us all to come to Jesus. In verse number three, and I want to read this, read this from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, so Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. And it says, she happened to be in the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz who's from Elimelech's family. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, that phrase, it just so happened, or it happened to be, or this happened to be the case, this is gonna come up quite a bit in the book of Ruth. Think about all these coincidental things that just so happened so far in this story. The patriarch of his family, Elimelech, in disobedience, just so happens to move to a place called Moab. One of his sons, one of his sons in his own rebellion just so happens to marry a woman named Ruth. Ruth just so happens to desire to follow after God and to return to Israel with Naomi 10 years later. Her sister didn't do that, but Ruth just so happened to want to, which makes no sense to anyone. Reading this story, Ruth should not have done this, but it just so happened that she felt compelled to do so. Ruth just so happens to end up gleaning in a field which just so happened to belong to one of Naomi's relatives. And he just happened to be riding his horse out to the field on the very day when Ruth just so happened to choose this field to forage grain in. And he just so happened to be a godly single man, the son of a Gentile woman who had also converted to to Judaism several years earlier. See, what we don't know about and what you didn't know about uh, Boaz's history, maybe, is that Boaz is of a mixed race, too. His parents, he had one Jewish parent and one Gentile parent. So he understands, and he's not looking at it in the same way that most people would. He looks at Ruth and says, you know what? That's cool. I understand the need for you to be drawn in to God's people. I don't have those same tendencies that many other people may have. All these totally random coincidences. That's not coincidence at all, is it? No. We know who's doing this. We know who's pulling the story together, right? It's our sovereign God. The same God that was on the throne while Ruth and Boaz are in the field is on the throne today while you and I are here walking planet Earth in 2020. The same God is still working his same will today. And he's still working just as much. But what we oftentimes do is we just chalk things up to circumstance or good luck or just coincidence. Folks, as a Christian, we cannot buy into the fact that anything is just coincidence. God is constantly working. He's working for the purpose of drawing humanity to himself. It's all being woven together by this sovereign, redeemingly loving God who wanted to bring Naomi back to a place of peace with God, who wanted to bring Ruth into a right relationship with him, and who also had other things at work that we'll find out about a little bit later. Pastor J.D. Greer says this, that there are no dramatic miracles 
or good fortune in the book of Ruth. It's just sovereignly controlled circumstances because this is the way that God works supernaturally in the world. It has been said before that coincidence is often God's way of just anonymously working in the background, or it's God's way of remaining anonymous. See, just as God is working sovereignly through every circumstance to redeem this broken situation in the book of Ruth, I want you to understand, and what we need to understand, is that God is working sovereignly to redeem every broken situation that we go through in life as well. And every one of us sitting in this room have brokenness. We may not be from Moab, widowed, and hopeless and destitute, but we are all hopeless and destitute in our sin. And God has been, since the moment that sin took place, has been working to redeem us of that sin. He's constantly been, all of God's work is for the purpose of drawing you to him, to a right relationship with him, to understanding his love for you in a better way. So stop and think for a moment, ask yourself this question, where have I chalked up something a coincidence that was God working anonymously anonymously in my life for his glory and for my good? See, God has the power to turn even the hard things, even the broken things, into beautiful masterpieces for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. Some of you all are into restoring furniture or remodeling houses. Anybody into that DIY type of stuff? Some things, no matter what your skill level, you find something, some projects may end up becoming a little bit too far beyond your skill set. With God, there is no project that is beyond his masterful skill set to reclaim for his glory. Somebody needed to hear that word today because you may be sitting here thinking, I am unredeemable, but you are not unredeemable. You are a treasure in the eyes of God, and he has been working and will continue to work to bring you to his redemptive side. You just have to see it. The second thing that we see here in the book of Ruth is that Jesus wants us in spite of our brokenness, kind of building on what we had just talked about. Remember that question that Boaz asks when he first sees Ruth in verse number five? He says, Boaz asks his servant who was in charge of the harvest. He says, whose young woman is this or whose damsel is this? He wants to know who it is. Ruth doesn't have very many redeemable qualities from the outside looking in. So there's three strikes against her. First of all, she's a Moabite. Okay, so the Jewish people avoided them at all costs because the Moabites were the offspring of an incestuous relationship that took place between Lot and his daughters. And they looked at them as already being cursed on top of the fact that there was a lot of political infighting between Moab and between Israel. Secondly, she's widowed, which to most Jewish men at that point, it meant that she was used goods or she was damaged goods. Plus the fact that if they knew that she'd been widowed after 10 years of marriage with no children, they're probably thinking, She's barren and cannot bear me any children. So they're thinking she's damaged goods and she's not even valuable goods at this point. Thirdly, she's poor, which they saw as a sign of God's judgment at that point. You see those people, those harvesters would harvest that grain and then sit back and watch and judge all the poor people who had to come because they looked at them as sinners that God was judging and that's why they were poor. So there's three strikes going against this woman, but then here's Boaz who represents a different kind of man in Israel. He represents a different kind of man. He says, I don't care about all that stuff. I'm looking at the quality of person that you are. And when he hears what she had done for her mother-in-law, when he hears that she turned against her pagan gods to turn to the God of Israel and all of those things, all of a sudden, all of that value is redeemed. See, and then on top of all that, there's no way Ruth looks very pretty at this point. There's no way. She's been gleaning in a field all day. Her one article of clothing is probably all nasty and torn. She's probably not smelling too good. This is not the kind of way you want to meet Mr. Perfect at this point. 
So there's nothing redeemable about Ruth during this meet cute moment. There's nothing redeemable when Boaz comes to see her. But Boaz represents a different kind of guy. He looks past all of those things. He looks past all of, those bro- all of that brokenness and says, I find you beautiful. I find you redeemable. I find something valuable about you. You see, what we learn from this is that true love, that agape kind of love, it will always want you in spite of your flaws. Always. This is the kind of love that stands behind the marriage vows. When a husband and wife stand up and they make a commitment to one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live until death do us part. See, we always want more richer than poorer. We always want more health than sickness. We always want more of that stuff than we do. But that's when agape love comes in is that even though you get sickness, I'm still there. Even though there's poorer, I'm still there. It's that agape love. In spite of the fact that we bear the curse of sin and death, Jesus wants us. See, just like Ruth bore a curse of being a Moabite, we bear a curse of sin and death, but Jesus still wants us. In spite of the fact that we're damaged goods, having been enslaved and used up by sin and beaten down by sin, Jesus still wants us to lift us out of that miry clay. In spite of the fact that we are poor with nothing to offer Jesus, he still wants us and offers us everything imputing all of his righteousness to us. He wants us in spite of our brokenness. And not only does he want us in spite of our brokenness, he wants to be our provider. He wants to be our provision. That's the third thing. In verses eight and nine, we saw that, uh, we saw that Boaz, when he comes to Ruth and he says, look, don't even hear another offer to go to another field. This is your field. This is where you will glean. And I will make sure that as long as you glean in this field, there will always be wheat for you here. See, not every landowner could make that promise. As the gleaners came, if there was nothing left, they moved on to another field. But Boaz makes sure that there will always be something for Ruth to glean, even if Ruth was the only person there. He said, if there's nothing left in the field, you can come over here and you can grab some out of the stalks that I've already collected, out of my first fruits. That's how much you mean to me. That's how important you are to me. That's how much I want to provide for you. And understand this, when you follow Jesus Christ, he doesn't give you the scraps. He gives you the first fruits. He gives you his best. Boaz tells Ruth to come to him whenever she needs water too. He offers for her to come and have a drink of water from, with his staff. Now understand this, that is something that would not have taken place normally. Because as a Moabite woman coming in around some Jewish men, if they even accepted her there, they would have made her act like a slave and go get them water. Instead, what Boaz says is no, we're, you're not gonna go get us water. We're gonna get you water. We're gonna serve you. We, God's chosen, are gonna serve you. God's rejected. I think that's a message to the church today too. I think that's a real message to the church today. And we look at the least among us and we look at those around us who do not have or those around the world who do not have, we need to have more of a heart for them rather than a fear of them. Boaz says, you don't have to be our servant. We'll treat you like family. We'll serve you. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus offers to us through salvation. When he says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to be our provision, and in relationship with him, we find that he provides us with eternal life to our death and rest to our weariness and food for our hungry soul. So the gospel of Christ compels us to come to him and find all that we've ever needed. And that is the same invitation that he gives to us today. 
Come to me and you'll find all that you've ever needed. It draws us in as slaves and adopts us into the family as royals. The next thing is that Jesus is constantly pursuing us with his love. In verses 14 through 18, after, uh, after they eat dinner or while they're eating dinner, we see this, is, it's, it's important. He's pursuing Ruth. It doesn't say that the rest of the, of the handmaidens are there. It says that he sits down with his staff or with his servants. This is an honorable place to be invited to. And I can imagine the servants sitting there thinking, what is Boaz doing at this point? If somebody sees him eating with her, like he's going to be the laughing stock of the entire town. But he goes ahead and does it anyway. And then he says, don't just, don't, he says, come here and eat of the food that I have. I'm going to give you what I have. Do you see the implication here? Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you will let me in, I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me. Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him. He invites us in. He draws us closer. As close as we may try to come to Jesus on our own, he says, you can't come any closer on your own. I'm going to, I'm going to overcome that and I'm going to draw you in. And I'm going to give you the grace that you need. And then when Ruth walks away, he looks at his, he looks at, uh, his people and he says, make sure that she never wants to go to another field. Make this field so good that she never desires another field. That was his act of pursuing her with his love. God's grace is so good. Once you come to know it, God's grace is so good, it leaves you with no taste for anything else. That's how good God's grace is to us. His love, when you truly come into the place where you know how much grace is and how much love he has given to you, it makes you just think there's no other love out there. There's nothing else that can be offered that's ever going to be this good. You lose the taste for everything else. I'm still waiting on that. People say that when you start eating healthy, you begin to lose the taste for the bad stuff. I'm still waiting on that to pan out. But with Jesus, when you come to understand the grace of God, and when you truly come to understand it, you start losing the taste for everything else. Jesus is constantly pursuing us with his love. And then lastly, as we move towards the invitation, when you meet Jesus, everything changes. Title of the message and what we opened with was talking about that meet cute. This moment when, when Boaz meets Ruth. When Boaz met Ruth, everything changed. Ruth didn't even understand how much it had changed until she got home and started talking to Naomi, right? When Ruth comes back home, she's loaded down with grain. More than enough grain for her and Naomi. It says there was like so many epaphs of barley that were there. Scholars believe that they had enough barley not only for themselves to subsist on, but they also had enough that they could go to the market and sell. So it was a monetary gain for them too. And then in verse number 20, all of a sudden because of one chance meeting in a field, their hopelessness is changed. And what we've seen so far is just the beginning of the change. And we get into chapters three and four, we're gonna see just what this meeting did and just how much their lives are changed by this meeting. But in verse number 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he's not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead. And Naomi continued and said, this man is close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Naomi's reaction to finding out that all the grain came from Boaz's field says it all. The woman who at one point was pleasant and sweet, living in the land of God, who then became bitter and hopeless and broken, living in the land of Moab, who then comes home lost and destitute without no hope, is all of a sudden brought back to being pleasant and sweet again. Why? Because she's reminded that God is still there and God is still good and God is still providing and God is still working. 
One meeting with Jesus changes everything. And the truth about it is, Naomi, no matter how long she had been in Moab, no matter how long she'd been away from God, God had not been away from her. She'd still, he'd still been working in the midst of all that, calling her back from Moab to a land of plenty, making sure that Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz. God is good. His goodness and his power is so strong that it overcomes all of our attempts to break it, all of our attempts to mess it up, all of our attempts to wander away. His kindness and his mercy are powerful enough to still draw us in when we need it. We'll explore that kinsman redeemer idea next week because it sets up a beautiful chapter in chapter three. We're going to see just how much more this love story gets real sweet and awesome and we apply it to our lives. But when you meet Jesus, everything changes. Everything. Nothing is ever meant to be the same. This is why the Bible says when we are saved, old things are passed away and all things become new. We're new creations in Jesus. In our sin, we're like Naomi. We're bitter, we're hopeless, with no hope of survival, with no hope of anything to come. But when you meet Jesus, when you meet the Redeemer, (laughs) everything changes. The Redeemer brings hope. The Redeemer provides. The Redeemer looks past all of the things, all of the reasons that he should say, get away from me. He looks past those things And God looks past it and he says, I have to still deal with the sin. I have to still deal with the brokenness. So I'm giving my son to redeem you. Because that's how much God wants us. That's how much God is pursuing us with his love. And when you come to Jesus, you are safe and you are reassured that you belong with him and with no one else. That everything up to that point has just been a prelude to the moment that you meet the Redeemer. So the question this morning as we close out, you already know what it is. Have you met the Redeemer? Have you truly met the Redeemer? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you wandered into his field of grace and have you been changed by his grace and his mercy and his love? Have you called upon him to be your Savior? Because next week we're gonna see the stage where Ruth calls out to Boaz. And that's something that each one of us need to do. We must call out to Jesus to be redeemed by him. The beautiful thing of it is, that's all we must do. We call out to him in faith, saying, Lord, I want to be yours. I need your redemption. I want to glean from your field of grace. Take me in as your own. So have I met the Redeemer? Or maybe you're here and you're like Naomi. You've met the Redeemer some time ago, but to be quite honest, your relationship with him has grown cold. You've wandered far, and you feel like God's given up on you or that he should. But understand what God did for Naomi. He never gave up on her. There is a redeemer and his name is Jesus. And one meeting with the redeemer, coming close to him again, makes everything right again. Not to get saved again, you're already his. But to rededicate and draw close to him again. It changes everything. So as we bow our head this morning and go into an attitude of prayer, and prepare our hearts for the response that God wants us, That's when I'm asking, what response is God asking of you? I'm not asking what response I want of you. I know what I would love to see God do, but you have to ask yourself, God, what do you want of me today? Are you saved? Do you know the Redeemer? If not, today's the day. Do you know the Redeemer, but have you wandered far? Come back to him today. 